Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Can we talk something else? Can can we talk about something else? Hello out there. While researching for Dark Topic, the time of year in which a crime occurred has always fascinated me. And when it comes to January, a month where most of us find ourselves contemplating what we can do to better ourselves through the new year, it has always struck me as unsettling when I discover a heinous crime has been committed in this month of new beginnings. For the world's most infamous serial killer, January is where it all began. January was the month in which he chose to start his ghastly criminal career of murdering women. Ted Bundy likely selected January to begin killing full-time, the same way you or I target January to begin a diet or a workout routine. But unlike you or I, Ted would stick to his new lifestyle. Dennis Rader, BTK, committed his ghastly annihilation of the Otero family in January. Only weeks after Bundy began, BTK activated as well. During a prolific calendar year for murder, one soaked in red X's, 1974. I have a fascination with 74, the year of Amityville, the year of the hi-fi murders, the year that not only ushered in Bundy and BTK, but Missoula's Mahler, Wayne Nance as well. Heavy Zodiac activity occurred in 74, the Casanova Killer, the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders, the Sunday Morning Slasher, the Lady of the Dunes. I could go on and on when it comes to 74. So join me as we climb through one of the more thoroughly smashed windows in true crime history and shine a light on some high-profile crime scenes that came to life in January of 1974. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. January of 74. January 1st, 1974, a Tuesday, Rochester, New York. The calendar of 74 and its month of January gets off to a blazing start when on New Year's Day, a 26-year-old fireman named Dennis Termini drives erratically through a Rochester, New York neighborhood closely followed by a howling police vehicle. Moments earlier, Termini had been caught red-handed by the pursuing officer, raping a teenage girl in a garage. 
Later, when the disgraced firefighter would be considered a prime suspect in the infamous Alphabet Murders case, investigators would share that this girl, who was one of more than a dozen victims of the locally notorious garage rapist, looked much younger than her age, like an 11 or a 12-year-old, and likely had been duped by Dennis Tremini by way of him wearing his fireman's coat, which he kept in his vehicle. The Alphabet Murders, if you are not familiar, occurred during the early 70s in the Rochester, New York area. Three little girls, aged between 10 and 12 years old, each from broken homes, each out running errands before dinner, each kidnapped before being raped and strangled to death and dumped by the road, were connected by a detail too incredible to be coincidental. Each little girl possessed double initials. To be clear, that's the same initial to begin their first and last name. Now, you might be thinking to yourself that that sounds like the very definition of coincidental. But wait, we're not done. The great mystery writer Agatha Christie released a detective novel in January of 1936. January, now there's a coincidence. The mystery was titled The ABC Murders and featured a serial killer hell-bent on killing those with double initials and in alphabetical order. Though our alphabet murders did not occur in order, they did include the additional quirk of the bodies being found in towns which held the first initial of their dead girl. For example, the first victim, 10-year-old Carmen Cologne's body was discovered in Churchville. You know what? Let me break these Rochester murders down for you, even though they didn't occur in January of 74. Then we'll get back to our firefighter rapist who has driven himself into a dead end. The pursuing officer is now being joined by every available unit as they close in fast ringing in Rochester's new year of 74 with flashing lights, sirens, and loud demands for Dennis Tremini to exit his vehicle with his hands up. Dennis reaches past a carefully folded map that details the little towns of Wayne County, where the girls were kidnapped from, and grabs his gun. We'll return to witness the fate of the garage rapist back on New Year's Day of 74, once we're done traversing a troubling and treacherous tear in time, some believe could have been partially torn by local firemen. Dennis Termini. November 16th, 1971, a Tuesday. Ten-year-old Carmen Cologne makes the short walk alone to the West Main Pharmacy in Rochester to pick up her grandmother's medication. It is 4.20 p.m. When the pharmacist informs Carmen that the prescription isn't ready and that it will take a few minutes to put together, Carmen responds, quote, I gotta go, I gotta go, then rushes from the counter and exits the pharmacy, where she's witnessed entering a dark-colored vehicle. This will be the second-to-last time Carmen is seen alive. The final report on the 10-year-old's condition and whereabouts comes a little less than an hour later, from around 30 different motorists speeding to get home for dinner via the 490 interstate. Carmen is seen running on the highway's cold shoulder from a dark-colored vehicle that is reversing at a high rate of speed to catch her. Carmen Colon is naked from the waist down and is crying and waving her arms at passing vehicles. The over two dozen witnesses to this incredible scene fail to pull over, and some observe a man grab Carmen by the arm, then escort the miserable, half-naked little girl out of the wintry weather and into her death chamber. It would be two days of frantic searching for the 10-year-old before her partially nude, beaten, and raped body was discovered accidentally by two teenagers walking through a gully in Churchville only 12 miles from where she was seen fleeing her kidnapper, her killer. Carmen Cologne, dumped dead in Churchville. 
A year and a half later, on April 2nd of 1973, a Monday, 11-year-old Wanda Walkowitz of Rochester, New York, goes missing at around 5 p.m. while on her way back home from buying groceries. The little redhead was seen struggling with her errand by some school kids around 5.15. The kids claimed to have noticed a dark-colored car closely following her. Wanda would wind up dead, raped, and strangled, her completely clothed body having been rolled down an embankment near the highway in a place named Webster. Custard would be discovered in her stomach during autopsy, leading investigators to believe Wanda had been fed by her attacker, as Wanda's family claimed to have never had custard in the house. White cat fur would be found in the 11-year-old's clothing. Pubic hair and semen would be recovered as well, and tested three decades later against the DNA of a disgraced Rochester firefighter who owned a white cat. Wanda Walkowitz, dumped dead in Webster. Seven months later, on November 26th of 1973, a Monday, 11-year-old Michelle Mianza is walking alone. She is headed to a Rochester shopping plaza. It had been a long day at school in which she had been reportedly bullied by classmates. Michelle, like Carmen and Wanda, was from a tough environment, an environment that changed her in ways that made her stand out from the other kids, and she often found herself alone as a result of being shunned by her peers. Michelle had been given the task of going to the plaza after school to retrieve a purse that her mother had left in one of the stores. The little girl would never return home. She was spotted twice that evening, however, once entering a dark-colored vehicle at the shopping plaza, crying by some accounts. It's important to keep in mind here that the Alphabet Murders case generated thousands of leads, many by morons just wanting to insert themselves into the excitement. But at least one call would be proven legitimate. Michelle Mianza was spotted at a burger joint in a suburb of Rochester, eating with an unknown white male. Undigested hamburger and fries would later be found in her stomach. But before the little girl's inevitable death, another credible sighting occurred. Around 6 p.m., a dark-colored vehicle with a flat tire was spotted being tended to by a man holding the wrist of a girl matching Michelle's description, a description I dislike despite its accuracy, one of a chubby, odd-looking little girl whom the man had hidden behind himself when a good Samaritan stopped to offer assistance. A menacing look on the killer's face scared away the possibility of Michelle being saved. Two days later, her clothes, raped, strangled body would be discovered face down in a ditch, 15 miles outside of Rochester. The name of this little town? Macedon. Michelle Mianza. Dumped dead in Macedon. And now, after that little side trip, we only need travel six weeks or so into the future to get back to Dennis Tremini and his showdown with police on January 1st of 74. Like I was saying, the garage rapist reaches over a map, a map folded to show small towns like Churchville, Webster, and Macedon. Initial some claim to have relevance, C-W-M, maybe standing for come with me, but that's a huge, dumb, ridiculous stretch, in my opinion. Speaking of huge, dumb, ridiculous stretches, the rapist fireman now completes his own, grabs his gun, and as officers close in, Termini shoots himself in the head. So that's that. That's what happened on the first day of January back in 74. It took a little while, but we got there. Dennis Termini was considered a viable suspect in the alphabet murders until his body was exhumed in 2007, and his DNA was tested to that DNA that was found in Wanda Walkowitz. Unfortunately, there was no match. 
which of course doesn't rule out Termini and the other murders, especially since he drove a dark-colored vehicle and lived in Rochester and had a white cat and enjoyed raping young girls. Perhaps the garage rapist was part of a group of killers. There are more than a few interesting suspects. Speaking of garages, I'd like to recommend True Crime Garage and their early episode on the Alphabet Murders. I believe they put it out back in 2016. It was excellent. If you'd like to learn more about this case that I don't have time to get into because I got a lot going on here in January of 74, um, check that out. True Crime Garage Alphabet Murders. I'd go deeper, but I'm late for a first date. A first known date, that is, for which Ted Bundy chose to ignite his prolific career as a hunter of women. January 4th, 1974, Seattle, Washington. University of Washington student Karen Sparks is reading in her basement bedroom, a bedroom within a dorm she shares with three other students, all males, when she thinks she sees a head in her window at around 1 a.m. It's dark outside and it's late. Could have been a cat, raccoon, but it sure looked like the silhouette of a head. Karen had been spooked earlier at the laundromat when she noticed a man who seemed to be staring at her, a handsome devil that she figured was a new student, having never seen him around before. Every time she had looked to stare back at the dark-haired stranger, he had feigned disinterest, and so Karen had dismissed it until the silhouette had peeked in through her basement window just now, a silhouette like the head of a handsome devil. Karen had chalked the shadow up to her imagination, and besides, she really had nothing to fear considering she was surrounded by men she knew and trusted in the dorm. So, at around 1.30 a.m., Karen Sparks turns out her light and soon drifts off to sleep. 27-year-old Ted Bundy has his whole serial killer life ahead of him, and it begins at this dorm room window. He would wait patiently until the light had been extinguished before entering the dorm and creeping down to the pretty girl's bedroom. Bundy was armed with a metal pipe, and once he managed to get into the bedroom undetected and close the door to the small room behind him, he slowly approached Karen's sleeping form and began hammering her over the head with a pipe. Karen will not have any memory of the attack. She's sleeping when she is beaten into a deeper slumber, which the young woman will miraculously awake from ten days later, with brain damage, with half of her sight and hearing missing, all of her faith in mankind destroyed. Karen will not come forward to tell her story until decades later. She is changed by the attack. She wants nothing to do with the investigation, with involving herself in any way when eventually Bundy begins making headlines. And perhaps she's smart not to. After all, Bundy does make a habit of escaping custody. Who's to say he wouldn't have come back to finish the job if she had spoken up? When she finally does, after the smoke from Bundy's eyes clears and... Then a few decades passed, to be sure, following his execution. The incredible and horrifying details of the attack speak to how lucky Karen is to be alive. After Bundy ensured his victim was immobilized by mercilessly beating her over the head with a metal pipe, he ripped her bottoms down and raped her with the metal pipe. This sadistic attack was so violent that it split Karen's bladder open. Blood flooded the mattress. Just as Bundy was getting really ramped up, wallowing in the rape and torture of his incapacitated prey, he heard a man's voice coming from outside of the room, close. Ted immediately bolted from the scene, like a jackal. His impulse is screaming at him to finish, but his instincts ushering him away, to be absorbed into the night. 
he would be breaking into another room in another basement door by month's end, this time taking his victim with him. But in this, his first known attack, the amateur serial killer had failed, though his bloodlust had swelled to an inhuman level. As a result, Karen Sparks would be discovered by a roommate at around 7 p.m. that following evening. For 18 hours or so, she had lay unconscious and bleeding in her bed. And if Ted had known this, there is little doubt he'd have returned to enjoy his near kill before finishing it. The roommate's voice can be heard through Karen's wall, the same voice that saved her the previous night, and it saves her again as he calls for help, though now he is consciously speaking. This is how lucky Karen Sparks had been. It turns out that Bundy had been spooked by the ramblings of her roommate, talking in his sleep. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash darktopic to check it out. 
badlandsfood.com. January the 9th, 1974, Sonoma County, California. 23-year-old Teresa Diane Walsh is identified as being the victim of a mysterious and vicious homicide that is connected to a string of slayings known as the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders. Partially submerged under a log in a creek outside of Santa Rosa, her body had been discovered by kayakers. Teresa was nude, hogtied with clothesline, in such a way that she had strangled herself to death by eventually losing strength in her limbs that were keeping slack on the noose about her neck. Don't try Googling how this system of ropes and knots is slapped together. You'll get a lot of disgusting pornography. Or do, whatever you're into. I got a big gaping asshole in my face, so uh, I suggest don't try it. All right, back to the story here. The horrific strangling death of Teresa Diane Walsh had been preceded by a vicious sexual assault. Teresa was a young mother and wife and had been hitchhiking home to her parents' place for Christmas. Without her child and her husband, I don't know all the details. Seems a little bit odd to me. Strange time, this 74. The FBI believes that Teresa was one of at least seven girls killed by the same perpetrator or perpetrators in similar fashion. Ted Bundy, the Hillside Stranglers, and the Zodiac Killer have all been high-profile suspects in the killings as they were active during the time frame of the killings. Bundy being a suspect in this murder is a bit perplexing as he was still busy in Seattle, obviously, then Utah back in 74. It's not clear to me why Bundy was even mentioned, though perhaps photos of Teresa Walsh with her dark hair that was parted in the middle simply fell into Bundy's suspected portfolio by online goofs. I mean, online sleuths. Sleuths. Sorry, I have trouble saying that word. Online goofs. California was a hotbed for serial murder during this time, and though it's possible some could be stray victims of a well-known killer, it's also quite possible that a completely unknown killer or killers were responsible for these unsolved murders. There was much more than seven, but seven of them had the aspect of the girl being tied to herself and strangling herself by relaxing her legs and arms, tightening the noose pitcher being hogtied with a noose somehow we're all wrapped up into that situation I don't know I'm not a bondage guy I'm a gaping butthole guy it's even possible that because most of the victims have been hitchhiking that they simply caught the eye of several individuals who decided to treat the Santa Rosa stretch as a deviant's playground a sexual sadist buffet line grab what you want just leave some for the others but of course, in the case of at least seven girls, the M.O. strongly suggests the work of a serial killer or killers. Back in 74, hitchhiking was just starting to become known as a hazard to one's health, especially as a female. It's easy to look back and say, hey, hadn't they uh, heard of guys like Kemper being out there? Didn't they read the news? But the reality is that a housewife toiling in some small Newfoundland village or a pipe fitter swearing at a split knuckle in the depths of the Canadian prairies, a place like, say, Saskatoon, presently, in 2022, will be more aware of Ed Kemper than a co-ed was living in the same state where Ed had just wrapped up his co-ed killing career back in late 1973. We know better now because of what happened to victims like those girls left hogtied, naked and dead, Scrawled like red X's in my mind back on the calendars of 72, 73, 74. We've learned that there are many men out there who are monsters. 
sex-crazed, power-driven beasts being covertly controlled by their base instincts, and only resisting the urge to knock women unconscious with clubs and drag them off into the woods for their pleasure, because if they're caught by us, we'll put them in a cage. Carpooling became a means of survival at this time amongst Sonoma County co-eds, and as the buffet of hitchhikers dwindled, the ravenous roadside hunt came to a close for the wolves in sheep's clothing. I often wonder how many men walk through this life harboring the potential to kidnap, rape, and kill. I know that growing up, running in the circles I ran in, that while drinking and drugging with undesirables, I lent an ear at times to dark-eyed men whom openly fantasized about sexually torturing a captive female. I wonder if these types have been driving through a place like Santa Cruz in the early 70s, passing pretty co-eds on the side of the road with their thumbs out. How many of these men that I'm speaking of would have done it? I think if you pile a few of these low-life types together in a van and dot a long stretch of desolate, forest-crowded road with free-spirited females needing rides, then have those men drive that road for years, you'd get the answer that they all would do it. It's not that the current beasts hiding amongst you and I are able to restrain themselves. It's just that they starve without easy opportunities. To eat. January 15th, 1974. A Tuesday. The TV sitcom Happy Days begins an 11-year run on ABC. 13-year-old Joni Cunningham, who coincidentally was born in Burbank, like Ed Kemper, will play the feisty little sister to Richie Cunningham and capture the attention of perverts everywhere. When BTK gets home from brutally murdering the Otero family on this date in Wichita, Kansas, he maybe tunes in. Joni is just his type. I will spare you a retelling of this crime. For those of you who haven't heard of it, search out my episodes on BTK and my Otero family murders app, which can be found here on Patreon if you search it. Also, publicly, I believe they're available as well. It's incredible that during this time period, we had so much action in the annals of true crime. Even more incredible that I could skip over such a brutal story as that of BTK's first shocking murders and still have enough material to get across my reasoning for focusing on January of 74. The month ends with a bang when the Zodiac sends a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle claiming responsibility for 37 murders while at the same time kicking dirt in the faces of investigators. It had been nearly three years since his last correspondence and he chose January of 74 to get back in touch. The letter was traced to have come from San Mateo or Santa Clara Valley. San Mateo rings a bell for me here after talking about Kemper. Big Ed dumped two of his decapitated victims' bodies along a highway in San Mateo. Amazing to think of Ed Kemper and the Zodiac possibly passing one another on the street. The Zodiac mailing a letter. Big Ed off to get a blowjob from a head in his trunk. Morning, Ed. Gary. There is one final infamous serial killer that made his mark on the calendar of January 1974 that I know of. I likely missed something. My focus was solely on the United States. We did not have an exact date, as his mind was kind of fuzzy on the details. The victim was never identified, but I feel like we can take this killer's word for it, even though he was a big, fat, disgusting liar. John Wayne Gacy can hardly be blamed for being unable to recall exactly who the young man was, being that this was his second murder of at least 33, probably 50-plus, and he'd been drunk, 
the kind of drunk that turns you into a completely different person, but allows you enough control to get all that person's filthiest desires spilled out so that you can enjoy being whole again for a few weeks. Until a new boy comes along, that is. John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, always had a new boy on the menu. But in this fresh month of 74, he himself was still a boy when it came to killing. The first he had stabbed to death, and in the process had orgasmed so hard that he almost fainted. This second one, Gacy had planned on enjoying a little more. You've heard of edging when it comes to masturbation, say? Well, Gacy quickly learned to edge the pleasure he derived from killing by drawing at his victim's death through torture. First came the handcuff trick. Gacy would cuff his own hands and seem to wriggle them free. When he gave his prospective victim a try, usually at around 3 a.m., just when the party seemed to be dwindling. The poor soul, drunk and likely exhausted by his host, would comply. When he realized the cuffs weren't as easily shrugged off as Gacy had made them seem, Gacy would ask if he'd like to know the trick. His captive would, of course, reply that yes, he would. And then John Wayne would smile broadly, let out a devilish giggle, and deliver his favorite punchline, quote... The trick is, you have to have the key. <laughs> then he'd overtake his prey, likely a teenage runaway in this case, a young man between 14 and 18 years old, white, brown hair, a metal band on his left ring finger, blue jeans, a shirt, underwear. That's all we have on him. That's all they found on a skeleton when they dug up the yard where Gacy buried him. This was before the crawl space became necessary, or an idea in Gacy's warped mind. Anyways... His story will never be told. Boy 28, as he's known. 28 being the number of order in which he was exhumed from the Gacy property. But if it was anything like the others, he likely had his chest sat on by Gacy's fat ass, then he would have been forced to fillet his attacker from this position. Then perhaps he would have been ridden like a pony. Literally, Gacy would get on some of their backs and ride them around the living room, dressed in full clown regalia at times. But usually he'd just get naked and rape his victim all through the witching hours. Who said nothing good happens after 3 a.m., eh, John? By the time the sun began to rise, Boy 28 would have been ready to go. He'd have been ready to leave at 3 a.m., but by 6 a.m. he'd be ready to die. Casey enjoyed drowning his victims in the bathtub, then bringing them back, over and over, to rape and beat and degrade, before plunging them under again. And some say there's no such place as hell. When the young man finally was strangled to death in what Gacy would announce to be his final trick of the evening, a tourniquet around the neck that he'd slowly tightened using a hammer handle, Gacy was then left with a corpse, something he never felt too squeamish about. He would, after all, live for years in a home where under dozens of his victims would be buried. This one, though, he kept in his closet for a while, perhaps even lay in bed with it some nights, as he'd done when he'd run away to Vegas in his late teens, and worked as a mortician's assistant. Back then, a young John Wayne Gacy had been given a cot to sleep on behind the embalming room, and later admitted he climbed into a coffin with a dead teenage boy to cuddle one night. Anyways, back in January of 74, amongst the rest of the high-profile true crime chaos revisited in this episode, John Wayne Gacy had a boy in his closet who began leaking on his carpet, so he eventually had to bury him in the backyard. It continues to amaze me that for any one circumstance, occasion, occupation, object, name it, there will be something true crime related attached. 
Google it. Think of anything. Type it into Google and attach the word murder to it. Birthday cake, flat tire, and put murder beside it. There will be a story. And when it comes to a month, and not just one from a specific year like what we did today, the dark topics are endless. that'll do it. I want to wish you all a happy new year. I'll be back with plenty more. This will be a massive year for Dark Topic 2023 coming up. And I'm as always so thankful for the support. Um, a few things have happened uh, recently. I, I, I have to mention that before I talk about everything else I'm about to talk about in this That Will Do It portion of the episode. Um, and for those who are on Patreon, you've heard what's upcoming here in a minute so you can tune out after I say what I gotta say here but I gotta say about Lori um, she was a huge Dark Topic supporter from the start Um, she was doing merch for for Dark Topic Um, she had the first Dark Topic tattoo it said quote um, and had the little Jack Luna head on her arm and I heard that she should I say I mean I don't feel like it's my place to say but I'll say this if there are people that you think are doing just fine, but they can be a little fucking uh, up and down, and you only see them when they're up, make sure that when you don't hear from them when they're down, that you check in on them. I didn't do that. And Lori, if you're hearing this somehow, some way, I'm sorry. And I wish you peace in the next world. And I know what she would say. I know what you would say, Lori. You would say, don't flatter yourself, Jack. It was more than that. It was more going, I know. And um, none of none of us in these situations can, can hold any guilt. It's up to the individual to make these choices. But you never know what can happen if you check in. It's a butterfly effect. None of it, none of the negative, none of the bad shit that ends up happening to some people uh, that they do to themselves would happen if someone checked in at the right time. But also there was a, um, like a crazy thing that happened in my town. I, I live in a community of about a thousand people. I'm from a city, you know, I've always lived in cities and you've all heard these, this from me before, but we moved to this small town and I've never had a real sense of community until I came here and it's a big reason why I've stayed for so long and why I've decided to raise children here you know I've had two two boys that being exclusively raised here kind of out in the middle of nowhere in, in Manitoba, Canada and I, I'll put the place down from time to time I'm, I'm you know I'm joking around um, I mean some of it but for the most part I'm, I'm joking around this community that I live in, I'm very tight with. I know just about everybody. I was the ice maker, the ice man, they call me. When I first moved out here, I did the uh, curling rink and the um, the ice hockey rink. I tended to the ice. I drove the Zamboni, and I was the pebbler. I'd pebble, if you know what that is for curling and all that. So I met a lot of the people through that. I worked at the gas station where you meet just about everybody. I worked in the schools where you meet all, a lot of the kids. I know everybody. And they know me, and, um, you know, walking down the street, you feel like 
in a small town, everybody feels like a superstar, you know? Like, everybody knows you. Every car that goes past, you wave at, you stop to talk to just about everybody you you meet. You catch up on the gossip. Uh, yeah, you go to the bar, and, and, and you, meet, uh, you meet up with everybody there, too. Anyways, there's this bar in town, the hotel, we call it, called it. And uh, it's the big meeting place. It was built in 1901. It has a big sign at the top. Uh, for, you know, it says it says the name of my town and, and the hotel and its meals and all that. There's an old uh, Coca-Cola sign out front. It's like going back in time, you know. You, you walk up some steps, you come in, and uh, it's a very old place. Upstairs, there's old hotel rooms. There used to be a pharmacy there as well. You could order your beer right out a window. And I love this window when you first walk into this bar where you walk in and uh, you, you, you look in through the window and, and in there there's the whole bar and the bar is lit up by like these little tiny lights all over the place. There's a pool table in the back. There are not individual tables, just like a big banquet table right down the middle. And if you go into that bar, you're either sitting at the bar with people or you're sitting at this massive banquet table with everybody. You don't have individual tables, you know, everybody's together. Very communal place. And you drink and you hear all about all the stories in town. You talk about yourself. You listen about others. There's music always playing. <sighs> Anyways, um, I wanted to talk about that. That when when I'm when you're looking into the bar, when you just want to grab beer, right? You order it from say Vinny, Vinny who worked at the bar there. He uh, or Gerald who works in the back and he would uh, make the food, right? And anyways, his wife. He ran it with his wife for a while, Anna, and she passed away. I knew very well. Anyway, so much history, and um, they they would pat they pass you your beer across this this piece of wood that looks like two heads. So it's like the shadow of my head and the shadow of the bartender's head, and it looks like they're melding and meeting. It looks like two alien heads meeting. I love this little table that you push it across. You can imagine. 120 years worth of people pushing beer across to each other and, and having conversation and leaning against this table. And you look into the bar and you say hi to everybody if you're not going to go in and usually you get yanked in. It's like, hey man, get a fucking in here. I'll buy you a drink. And then you come in you sit down and you're there for five hours and you get yelled at when you come home. I love that bar. You know that song? That song we playing all the time? They had a jukebox. Um, I love this bar by Toby Keith. We got winners. We got losers, chain smokers and boozers. You know that song? You got yuppies. We got bikers, thirsty hitchhikers, some fucking shit. But that song, you know, I love this bar, was always fucking playing. And uh, Copperhead Road, which was uh, Gerald's favorite as well. So... Any fucking ways. And, and there's guys who work the rails because it's right by a, um, a train track, right? You always hear the train. So all the guys who work the rails, they, they stay up in the hotel. And all those guys, I knew all those fucking guys too. And um, you're looking through that window and uh, say hi and all that. And often there was a, one of my friends, his name is Cam. <sighs> um... When I first came out here, I was at a party at a bush in town. So the town is full of kind of woods. Like there's trees and shit everywhere and then there's houses everywhere. You know when you go camping and there's all those separate little sections? The town is like that. So I go to one of these sections where they're having a party one night with my father-in-law actually. And uh, we're around a fire and we're burning fucking everything. And, and this guy comes creeping out of the bushes and he's trying to grab a girl. 
who I don't know. And this girl will later end up being my my girl's best friend. They are super tight, hilarious together. And I was trying to grab her, and she's yelling at him and smacking at him, and they're arguing. So everyone's like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck's going on? And it turns out they had just broken up. So I get up, and I confront him, and he pushes me. So I grab him in the head like I flip him, and I start punching him. And everybody grabs me off, and he's all kind of fucked up or whatever, and, and he gets thrown away for the party so I'm this is when I first kind of came into this town and this happens so word gets around that I beat up Cam and I become like a small legend because of that because everybody wanted to beat up Cam but after going to the bar and and spending more time here me and Cam Cam lives at the bar literally lives at the bar with his dog Patrice. He's a Boston Bruins fan and Patrice Bergeron is a star player for the Boston Bruins. I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. He's a Boston Bruins fan so we have that combativeness going as well, right? But he invites me back to his place because we start to get along because of this situation. We know, we know each other and we have history, immediate history. And uh, he'd bring me around to smoke joints with him in um, the back of the bar. So there's the bar and then there's apartments in the back and he had this shitty little apartment in the back and he was actually the manager for some fucking reason of this uh, the slew of apartments that are back there that they use for the uh, rail railroad guys and all that. A tough little guy, uh, always had his shirt off. Um, I'd, I'd go in and check on him from time to time and smoke butts with him and, and bring him beers. He was... He, you help you help out whenever you can and so I pop in on Christmas pop in Thanksgiving uh, just because I knew he was alone and uh, we had some great conversations and him and I laugh and laugh and laugh and and I love making fun of things and you know the way it is in town she can make fun of everybody and all that shit so um, you know the last thing I, I remember about this bar is coming up to get my beer and I see Cam sitting there and he doesn't get along with anybody and he's just drinking his beer. And I go, hey, Cam. He goes, hey, what's up, buddy? And uh, we go out for a cigarette. Goes back in, and I tell I tell the bartender, Vinny, I'm like, hey, pay for the rest of his beers. I know he's going to grab some when he leaves. Pay for everything for him. Just do it. He won't let me if, if I, you know, announce it to him. And uh, I get sick. And there's a possibility that I would have gone and checked on Cam on um, Christmas Eve but I was deadly sick it's possible I'm not saying I definitely would have but it, it is possible if I'd have been feeling right um, I had just be- actually been to the bar be- right before I got sick and I saw my buddy John who built uh, the the addition on the back of our house give him a big hug and he's like hey we're starting a bar league there for pool and I, I mentioned that too I was going to start playing pool in the bar and uh, that was going to be like a weekly thing I was really looking forward to it I love that fucking bar. I love that place. I love being around the people here and all the stories, seeing the fights, seeing the arguments, seeing the laughter, being a part of the laughter. It's a beautiful fucking place. And um, I should mention that Cam and I played pool all the time together. He was a good pool player. So I was going to ask Cam to be my partner for it. And uh, I get sick. And uh, anyways, it's it's Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. I don't go see Cam. Night goes by, and about five in the morning, my mom, who lives out here, I, I get a message from her, and she says, the bar's gone. And she sends me a picture of this massive inferno. 
and uh, we get up for Christmas, and and we we open our presents, and then I say, hey, let's go for a drive, and we all go for a drive, and we see the bar, it's gone, this massive fucking bar building from 1900, and with all the apartments, 15 people homeless, all this shit, um, it, it, the bar itself, gone, and then I hear that Cam and his dog um, died in it. And I think, I, and nobody knows what happened yet, but I, th- I think he probably fell asleep with a cigarette in his mouth or a pizza in the oven or his, his space heater was negative 25 that night, I think, or 22. His space heater may be fucking up against uh, something that lit on fire as he passed out hammered. And that whole fucking bar went up and it's gone. It's all gone. And the guys who work there don't have jobs anymore. The people who live there don't have a, a home anymore. And Cam doesn't have his life anymore. It is his dog, Patrice. And that's that. I mean, uh, I don't know what else to say about that. It was, it was a really magical place. And people are mourning that place. And Cam, Cam had a life. Cam, Cam was a person. You know, he was, he was that bar. And he's gone too. And uh, it's really hard. But anyways, um, I'm going to move forward and, and we're going to have a, a great uh, a year of, of Dark Topic. I, I really want to thank you all for, for the support. And um, just try to appreciate the things that you think that you take for granted, I guess. We, people always say that, but I did take that bar for granted. And I, I took Cam for granted. We all did. But fuck, I, I miss I miss the hell out of I miss the hell out of all that. Alright, until next time. Keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you. I'll be back real soon. I appreciate this being a place for me to share things such as that. And um, it's not lost on me how lucky I am to have this this venue and to, to make a living off of it and, and to be able to write and, and share and and um, play fucking dark topics like what we just heard and, and like what I had experienced and just shared. Thank you. <laughs>